Welcome to this podcast where director Jeff T. Thomas chats with some of the most talented TV and film directors in the industry. This is an in-depth look at how they got into the business, as well as sharing some of the most defining moments in their career. This is The Director's Podcast. From photography as a teenager in Australia to documentaries and his first two feature films in New Zealand. My next guest has worked with the likes of Daniel Day-Lewis, Anthony Hopkins, Laurence Olivier and Tom Cruise. He directed two movies that opened number one at the box office, including the biggest opening for a movie that Disney had made at that time. I asked Roger Donaldson if he remembered the first time that he realised that he wanted to work in the film industry. Well, uh, you know, I think it all starts where I grew up. I grew up in Ballarat in a small, you know, a small country town in Australia. And uh, I, was, uh, I was going to be a geologist. I went to geology school. But on Saturday mornings, I would do art classes. And um, I had a really great friend, Frank Bormans, who had an older brother, John Bormans. And John was crazy about photography. He sort of embodied, he, he you know, gave me the, the passion for photography, I guess. And that's where it all started. I was started out as my filmmaking career, really, as a photographer. And very quickly, um, that, uh, you know, that morphed into, like, shooting films and doing uh, documentaries and uh, commercials in New Zealand. The photography started out, uh, you know, I was about at 16 when I started off taking photographs for the, you know, the school rag, I guess, you know, the yearbook and stuff like that. Um, I had to turn my parents' uh, laundry into a dark room and printed my own stuff. And that's where, you know, the passion came for, for both the technolo- technology side of filmmaking as well as the, um, the uh, you know, the artistic side of it. I was uh, 19 when I moved to New Zealand and, um, you know, I, I really reinvented myself when I went to New Zealand. I became a filmmaker and a film photographer and turned my back on uh, geology and my life was changed there forever. And what made you discover film in, in the first place? Well, uh, you know, pretty soon after discovering photography, I you know, saw the connection between photography and uh, shooting commercials, really. I was, you know, doing fashion photography and photojournalism and a bit of everything. And out of the photojournalism side of taking photographs, I discovered that, you know, storytelling really. And once I discovered storytelling, then I, uh, you know, things moved forward very quickly along the filmmaking career. But I had the help of some very, couple of guys, Des DeBelt and another guy, uh, Bob Harvey. These two guys were very instrumental in sort of mentoring me, I guess, and helping me sort of make that transition from being a nobody into somebody. Des DeBelt, he, he was the editor of a, of a uh, sort of an entertainment magazine in New Zealand. And he gave me, you know, opportunities to do photojournalistic stories about rock groups and music and art and filmmaking. And, um, and then Bob Harvey, he ran a, an advertising agency. And uh, he gave me some of my very first work and gave me my first filmmaking jobs. The first sort of paying job that I ever had for filmmaking was I got a job shooting uh, some commercials for the uh, elections in New Zealand at the time. And uh, I, uh, I borrowed this friend's bollocks and I went to the library and didn't read the instructions properly on, the, on how to load the film. And I'd hired a plane and done this aerial, this aerial shoot of uh, Auckland and when I got the film back it was sort of going in and out of focus. And, I hadn't read the manual properly where it said, make sure the film's locked in the gate. Excellent. <laughs> you, I know you wrote Sleeping Dogs. Um, what, what inspired that? Oh, well, I'd, I'd made a number of documentaries and short films and uh, had a, uh, I, re- I, met a, I met a really great guy, Ian Mune, who we're still great friends. 
and Ian and I both had discovered we, I was making documentary films and commercials and Ian was an actor and a stage director. And uh, we, we got together through a, a mutual friend and, um, you know, Ian and I just clicked immediately. You know, we, we were like, God, we're going to make some films together. You know, he had the, the knowledge of how to handle actors and I had the knowledge of how to handle cameras and editing and stuff like that. And together we, we made a, uh, a film with another friend called Derek and it was a film that was shot sort of over a weekend. I borrowed another friend's camera who had been a, a war photographer in Vietnam who had moved to New Zealand, Ebe Heller. And uh, Eve lent us his camera and um, we shot this drama called Derek, which was a sort of battle. So Ian, my friend, he acted in it and I was the cameraman and together we sort of co-directed it. And we had another friend who helped us with the script and we had a bunch of friends who were the actors in the project. Well, it was just about this guy who it was his last day at work and he was the, the office was pretending that he had been, uh, the office was pretending that he'd left of his own free will, but in fact he'd been fired. And so he's sort of making moves on the, on the office secretary that he had the pots for. And, you know, it was by today's standards probably pretty innocuous, but it got onto New Zealand television and being it was a, it was a little controversial. It had some, it incurred the, the wrath of a, a sort of a morals reformer and campaigner in New Zealand, Patricia Bartlett, and Patricia Bartlett took a particular dislike to this film because of its rather sordid nature and that we were on our way. It was the first dramatic film that um, I made. And then we, then Ian and I, we decided that we'd try and make a series of films. And we made, first we made one called The Woman at the Store, which was a half hour drama that we got money from the New Zealand Education Department and the Arts Council and some actors and myself included. And um, then the, that film was also shown on television and was successful. And so we used that as the sort of springboard to get the money to make another six films. So now we had seven films and we decided that we would market the, they were all New Zealand short stories that were uh, based upon, you know, short stories that were of meaning and importance in New Zealand from important writers. And so we had this series of seven short films, all New Zealand-based writers, and uh, we, we packaged them as winners and losers. And together we went off, Ian and I, we went off to the Cannes Film Festival to MIP TV, which is, I think, precedes Cannes. That we set about uh, trying to sell these films. Nobody had ever sold any films from New Zealand overseas before, you know, drama films overseas before from New Zealand. And um, I think uh, the, the luck came when some Scandinavian film buyers saw these films and loved them and bought them. And um, from that, we finished up selling these films to 70, 52 countries around the world, the USA included. I think public TV here bought them. And nobody had ever, you know, it was great publicity for us back home. Nobody had ever sold any dramatic films overseas before from New Zealand. And the, the, uh, the goodwill, I guess, associated with that success gave me uh, sort of a calling card for, to make, try and make a feature film. And um, I set out, I was, gonna, I was gonna try and do something else feature-wise, feature but my friend Bob Harvey said, have you read this book, Smith's Dream? It's a great book and, you know, it's sort of international, could make a great movie and so I, I read the book and decided, yeah, what a, you know, it would make a great, um, great movie. And it, uh, you know, it had an international flair about it, uh, international quality to it, but it was also very New Zealand. And uh, Ian is also in that film. And we got, uh, I had, uh, I wanted to get an international American actor to play uh, one of the characters in the film. And I decided that Jack Nicholson would be perfect. And so I managed to get Jack Nicholson's uh, 
agent or his manager's number and I called him and I think he only took the call because it was coming from New Zealand. Anyway, I remember him saying... So, uh, so what do you want? You I said, we want Jack Nicholson to come down here to New Zealand and be in our film, da-da-da-da. So how much are you offering, Jack? And I said, oh, we, we, we've got $5,000 in the budget. He goes, like, I don't think Jack's coming. So, so but he said, I've got another actor, Warren Oates, who I know loves fishing, and I hear you've got great fishing in New Zealand. And maybe I could persuade Warren to come if you have a few first-class tickets and looked after him down there and found some good fishing for him. And so we managed to get Warren Oates to be in the film. Um, I remember Warren turned up on the set, sort of drove in straight from the airport to the set. Somebody gave him the script, he got a bottle of beer and started drinking a bottle of beer, and he walks onto the set. And if you look at the movie, you'll see him walk onto the set, but he's actually got a piece of paper in his hand, and that's the script. He's reading from the script as he walked on the set, and that's the take that's in the movie. So it was important for you to make a movie that uh, resonated internationally then? Well, I, you know, I just felt like New Zealand was the middle of nowhere and that if I could, you know, I was sort of thinking of what, I was trying to think of how, you know, as much, because I, I knew how difficult it was to market anything, that an audience is not easy. So I felt like if, I could, if it had an international quality to it, that maybe I could find an audience that extended beyond New Zealand. You had a lot going on in that movie. You had helicopters, you had... Well, the, you know. the New Zealand Air Force was very, even though it was sort of anti the New Zealand Air Force in a way, uh, the New Zealand Air Force were incredibly cooperative and, and the Minister for Culture, I think, who was in Conservative government, he actually was very much behind the arts and he helped negotiate our way through to get the Air Force's cooperation to make the film. They led us a number of helicopters and fighter jets. I asked Roger what it was like shooting a movie of that scale, having only the experience of making a few short films beforehand. Well, there's a there's a movie that was made at the time about the making of, and I actually looked at it totally by coincidence the other day because some people in New Zealand wanted to post it on um, on the uh, New Zealand on screen, and uh, it's a sort of a great reminder of you know that it didn't all go straight. There were lots of kinks in the cur- lots of kinks in the story, you know, to get there. How long did it take you to shoot it? Do you remember? God, I haven't got a clue. It's so long ago, 1977. Yeah. So it's a fair while ago. So that was um, Sleeping Dogs. That was also Sam Neill's first. Right, Sam. Uh, I'd seen Sam in a short film where he played a priest, and he was so convincing as a priest. I thought he really was a priest. I didn't know Sam, but you know, I saw his work, and so I tracked him down and said, Sam, you know, how about being in our film? And Sam said yes, and that was his first feature He film. was great in it, actually. No, he was, and, we're, you know, Sam and I are still friends to this day. We've never had the pleasure of making another movie together. We should have by now, but we haven't. Well, why is that? That's the way the movies go, you know. So that movie was well-received. Um, I presume it was a difficult movie to make, being your first movie and writing the script and being so involved in posting and... Back then, you were obviously editing on a steam back. You know, it wasn't digital editing like we're doing today. Yeah. Um, how did you go on from there to Smash Palace? What, what was the... God, you know, there, there, was a, there was another film between Sleeping Dogs and Smash Palace called Nutcase. That's an unavailable, actually. I did try to find that, but I couldn't find it anywhere. No, time. I don't think it is. A, I mean, I, I have a copy of it, but it's a kid's movie. Anyway. We had this idea that, you know, there were... If we could make a kids' movie, we could release it in the school holidays and um, you know, break through into that territory. Yeah. And um, what I was what I was talking about was that all of these films, these early films I made, had 
every other filmmaker that, you know, has ever hit the international stage that came from New Zealand as part of it. People like Jeff Murphy and uh, Sam Pillsbury and uh, Stuart Dreiber, the people like that who, you know, went on to make international names for themselves were, were part of these films. So like Jeff Murphy, who was a great film director who unfortunately died a year or two ago. Uh, Jeff, you know, he, he did all the visual special effects and came up with ways to make the guns for sleeping dogs and the bombs and the... So you made the guns for sleeping dogs? Yeah, you couldn't, there were no guns in New Zealand. And what did he make them out of? Wood. And used, made, made, the, made them look like they were firing bullets out with uh, match heads. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so you had match... But you have explosions? So you had pyrotechnics in New Zealand? Well, we didn't really have much experience. I mean, there was zero experience doing that sort of stuff. But there was a, a stunt guy called Jerry Popov that um, had done some international work and crashed cars in Australia, I think, you know, sort of a, one of those automobile circuses, you know, where people, where they do, you know, drive cars on two wheels and smash into each other. And Jerry was fearless and Jerry was, he came along as our as our stunt coordinator and stunt man and and car driver and so was, Jerry was you know he was Russian and uh, he, Jerry was a big you know big help and then there was Mike Saracen who uh, Michael Saracen who is uh, you know a great DP who lives in London he's done a number of movies uh, Alan Parker's films he shot a few of those uh, anyway he came to New Zealand and he is a New Zealander and uh, he did the, he was the DP so we had some really, you know, experienced, talented people who were helped make the film, and without them, of course, there would have been no film. And how long was it then? Uh, was it a couple of years then before, uh, after you finished uh, well, well, Nutcase that, that to go into Smash Palace? There was, 77 was uh, Sleeping Dogs, and then uh, I think 81 was um, Smash Palace. That was a very different experience. I'd actually got some money from the film, for, I guess it was the film commission, to write a script, and I was going to write a script called Killer Curry, about a, a wrestler and a solo mom and a kid. And I, for the life of me, I couldn't get this story to gel, you know, every, every idea I had didn't seem to be good enough. Anyway, I remember I went to England and uh, I was sort of took a break and I was going to find a little sort of perfect place by the sea to sit down and write this script. And I remember I was in a cafe one day and there was a newspaper heading said, Boy Five in Gun Siege. And uh, I thought, God, you know, I suddenly got a totally different idea about, you know, uh, what I wanted a, you know, a film to be about and I finished up, I wrote uh, Smash Palace and that film really did click with the international audience, especially with the critics. I asked Roger how the process of making Smash Palace was different to his first movie. Well, it was done a lot quicker. I started shooting the film. I'd, I, had the, I had the script and I was trying to raise the money for it. And uh, I... It got sort of like I'd set a start date for the film because I'd sort of worked it back from the Cannes Film Festival that I had to be started by, I think it was some date in January or February. can't remember the exact date. And um, I had a friend who was a race car driver, Steve Millen. Steve, uh, I, Steve was looking for some sponsorship for his car in the New Zealand Grand Prix series, and I said, well, if I can get you some, sp- you know, I'll sponsor the car, and it, but it, it, we'll use it in the movie. So Steve agreed to that. And we painted up the car, and, you know, like it is in the movie. And we ran in the New Zealand Grand Prix series, and we shot those races. And however he did in the races was going to be where we would put him in the movie. Anyway, we had this. Uh, we had a. I remember at the Pukekohe race track, we had a, a, a like a, an afternoon sort of pop the champagne and announced that we were going to make this film and going to sponsor Steve for the for the Grand Prix series. And I knew I had enough money of my own to shoot for one week. 
I don't know, I can't believe I had the nerve of looking back on it, but I, I called up everybody who was, you know, on the cusp of being involved and said, listen, you're the last one in, we're going to make this movie if you've put your money in and I've put my money in and everybody else is in if you're in. And I said this to everybody. <laughs> Nobody let me down. So we got the money together to make the film. We started shooting on time and we had the film completed and at the Cannes Film Festival in May of that year. Um, it was too late to get into a competition. So it was in the marketplace and I remember the first screening there were, you know, like half a dozen people. The next screening there was like nearly a full house. The third screening there were people fighting to try and get into the theatre. And the, the couple of um, U, uh, US critics, uh, Roger Ebert in particular and Kathleen Carroll, Kathleen Carroll, I think her name was, and then um, a number of these US critics saw the film and sort of talked amongst themselves and spread the word. And the film, you know, just took off from that that sort of you know, groundswell of support from these American critics. Did it get uh, distribution in America as well? Yeah. Right. Atlantic Releasing. Uh, I had a number of offers and I went with Atlantic Releasing, who unfortunately were not the greatest people to go with in the film, I think. Didn't really get the release it should have, but it opened at the Paris Theatre in um, New York and uh, it was in the uh, the Museum of Modern Art, I believe, had, a, had it in their series. And so it got it got it internationally distributed. I mean, it was internationally distributed, but it was distributed through the art house cinemas of America. Wow! So suddenly you're you're still in New Zealand, but you have a movie. Yes. That... So you know, then you know, people who had seen the film in America and you know, always looking for the next sort of hot shot in town, I guess, started calling me. You know, they'd get the time wrong and be in the middle of the night in New Zealand, and I'd get a call from America saying, you know, I've just I've just seen your film, and oh my God, you've got to come here and make some films for us. I've met some people like um, from Orion Pictures in Australia at a film conference uh, and they had, you know, indicated that I should try and make my way over here. But um, it was um, Richard Zanuck and David Brown, who, you know, the producers who uh, had a project called A Shattered Silence and they were looking for a director and I liked the script and I, you know, they were heavyweight you know, producers. They had a deal at, at Fox. So they brought me over to the States, but no sooner had I got here, I, will, I was working on the script with Abby Mann, who'd written Judgment at Nuremberg, and so it was, you know, some heavyweight people involved in this project. But no sooner had I got here and sold up everything and packed up my bags from New Zealand and come over here, then the movie went into turnaround at Fox. So there was no movie suddenly. And then I had the good fortune to meet Ed Pressman. And Ed was a, he'd done a, um, some some films that I really liked, and Ed's quite a character. And Ed said, "Hey, listen, I'm making, a, I'm doing a sequel to a movie I've made already called Conan. I want to do the sequel." And I was like, "He said you can you can write the script and you can direct it." So it was a very different type of movie to what anything I'd ever done. And I was felt like you know Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, I like the idea of that. And I met Arnold. I remember, and you know, we were all on board to make a great sequel to Conan. And then uh, in the middle of writing the script, Dino De Laurentiis bought the rights of uh, Conan from Ed and now Ed, Dino owned him. And um, Dino, uh, Dino got me to co turn up to a meeting at the um, Beverly Hills Hotel. He had a bungalow out the back there. And uh, he's, um, it's a meeting about Conan, what we're gonna, how we're going to go about making it. And he holds up this giant thick wad of paper or a script like had about 270 pages and he says, why you want to make, uh, why is this a script of so long? And I was like, it's just a normal, you know, what, what, what do you, he says, 270 pages long. And I, what are you talking about, Dino? That 
I said, let me have a look at that. And I realized it's in Italian. He's had it translated into Italian. And so the script is now very, a lot longer than it was in English. Anyway, to cut a long story short, very soon after meeting Dino, he had me, uh, offered me the, de- to, uh, the, the bounty to direct. The history of it was that he had fallen out with David Lean, who had developed the script originally. Uh, he had the boat, the, the, you know, the replica of the bounty was being built in New Zealand, and that's how I knew about the project. And in fact, back uh, in not long after 1977, I guess it was, um, David Lean came to my studio in New Zealand and looked at sleeping dogs looking for actors for the film. And then Dino and um, David had gone their separate ways and now the film was without a director and that's how I got the job. Debbie McWilliams was the casting director on that film and she did an amazing job of finding, you know, new unknown talent at the time, Daniel Day-Lewis and... Liam Neeson and a bunch of other really great actors who, you know, you see in British television all the time. When I came on board, Tony Anthony Hopkins was associated with it, but the rest of the cast was not in place. And what was that, I mean, that, that the scale of that movie in comparison to... Well, it was a very different sort of filmmaking to anything I'd ever done. You know, I, the, the film was based in England and I was hired in, the, in America, so we moved over to London working out of Twickenham Studios. And um, I mean, Dino would do things like, Dino was based in New York. And I remember one day, early in the morning, he calls up and says, Roger, come, we're gonna have a script meeting today in New York. And I'll go today. And he goes, yeah, you catch the Concorde, you fly over for the meeting and you can be back at work this afternoon. And that's what happened. Well, you know, of all, of all the producers I think I've ever worked with, that Dino was the most sort of, you know, in that sort of uh, legendary sort of place of you know, one of those great producers who got many, many films made. and had a larger-than-life sort of quality of personality about him. Even though he wasn't a very big guy, he was a giant personality. From New Zealand to Los Angeles, to prepping with David Lean's crew in London and taking day trips to New York City. As production was about to begin, Rojana found himself en route to Tahiti and also back to New Zealand. So the, the, the bounty, you know, um, was filmed in London and in... Uh, 10 weeks in Tahiti, and then I persuaded them to shoot some of it in New Zealand. And so, uh, you know, some of the filming got done in New Zealand, and many of, my, many of the people on the crew were from New Zealand. People like John Mahaffey, who I think he was a focus puller at the time. Now John's like one of the biggest second unit um, directors out there doing, you know, Marvel movies now. That's that, that, Those are the sort of people that we had on the, the crew back in the 70s. Yeah. And... You know, you you were hired to do this. The production was already underway. Um, did you get to pick a lot of your crew? Or? Well, the production really wasn't really underway. It, it sort of, you know, they talked about it and they were fighting about the length of the script and they had. You know, I, what I came on to do was really start again. So did you get rid of some of David Lean's crew and bring some of your own on? Or? No, I wasn't into getting rid of anybody, really. I was, you know... Bernie, Bernie Williams was the line producer, and Bernie, had, uh, I think he was associated with it from the start. And where did you start? Did you start in the studio in Twickenham and then go to Tahiti and then...? Oh, good question. I think we started in Tahiti, I think. Now, that, see, that segment of the movie where the bounty arrives in Tahiti and they all come together and a big portion of the movie takes place there. First of all, you're shooting on a boat. You're shooting, um, I've been to Tahiti, it's an incredible place. Um, I mean, what was that experience like? I mean, you've got Daniel Day-Lewis, you've got Anthony Hopkins. Well, it was, you know, it was a, you know, a great cast and a great bunch of, you know, really talented actors. And I had, you know, 
I think if ever I uh, could say, claim I had a talent that was for getting good people in my movies and obviously having an eye for people who were going to be talented stars. And, uh, you know, I was, I, I, you know, one of the other things I felt like I sort of knew my way around was making sure that nobody got confused with anybody else, that each actor was very defined in their own sort of qualities about their looks and style of acting. And so they, you know, nobody got confused with anybody in what was a large cast. But Tahiti was really tough going because it was very hot. It was, you know, working in the tropics and half the crew would sort of, you know, want to go tropo and disappear with the girls and it was pretty challenging. How were the actors? Obviously, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis is very new to film at the time, uh, Mel Gibson, um, you know, what? how how were they back then? Did, were they in good spirits? Or? The one thing about, you know, actors, whether they're famous or not famous, is they always are trying hard. And, you know, if they're in an environment where they feel like their work's appreciated, they'll work damn hard and give it everything because they, you know, they want it to be as successful as you do. And um, I think for me, you know, to get involved with this, you know, really great crew as well as really great actors, um, you know, it was, was a total eye-opener for me. If anyone listening hasn't watched this movie and needs inspiration of whether they should watch it or not, I would say check out the scene where they land in Tahiti and I guarantee you you'll watch the rest. No, I mean, it's, you know, it was big-scale movie-making and I hadn't done anything remotely like this before and not too much since, really. Um, maybe 13 Days and Dante's Peak was movies on that scale, but... You know, it was epic scale filmmaking. And as such, you know, it was enormously challenging but rewarding to do. Yeah. Well, just imagine that boat resetting the bounty. Did you have it on tracks or was it sailing? Was it motored? Well, it was sailing and, you know, it wasn't like today where you could digitally remove stuff that you didn't like. You know, I mean, now you wouldn't care if there were other boats on the horizon or whatever. But, you know, when we went out to shoot at sea, you know, we had to make sure there were no other boats in sight anywhere and... We'd get the boat sailing, we'd suddenly be 100 miles away from Tahiti and we'd have to beat it back into the wind and the boat, everybody would be seasick. And so that must have been quite a large schedule. It was. was I think I think the shoot was 120 days. Wow, that's really It was big. big. And did you have um, mm. a big second unit crew? Um, not really. No, I was, I'm a bit of a sort of do-it-all myself. I don't really take too much to second really? unit crews. Shooting the what, what? I mean, what did you shoot in New Zealand compared to Tahiti? Uh, we did the storm. There's some storm storm sequence going around Cape Horn, and then I think there's some sequences of leaving England. There's a scene at a wharf where they're loading up stuff, and then there's this. We took the boat off the coast of New Zealand into rough weather and filmed it, and then we also did. Um, we built a giant set with dump tanks, and letting you know tons of water go down onto the deck of the ship and creating a storm. All the, all the below, all the set stuff, all like the ship below decks were sets on a Twickenham on giant sort of single gimbal so that you could make, you know, get a hundred guys around the set and uh, you can move it, make, make it feel like it was a ship moving. Obviously there, you have those days where you've got the, the you know, the incredibly difficult uh, physical things that you have to get by, you know, like the, you know, the hundreds of people or the extras or the boat and the water or the weather or something. But what was it like the moment, like the morning you woke up and you thought, right, today I have a scene with Laurence Olivier and Anthony Hopkins. And Laurence Olivier is an actor who's won four Oscars. He's won, you know, two British Academy Awards, God knows how many Emmys and all the rest of it. What, I know. In fact, uh, one of the very first scenes I think we shot was um, with 
with Laurence Olivier, and I remember being—I do remember being nervous at you know, the reputation of this amazing actor. And we, we, uh, we, we're going to do a take. We've we've rehearsed it up, and we're going to do a take. And um, Laurence, so Laurence, or Lord, I think he was then really, Lord Laurence Olivier. Anyway, he, I got the camera rolling in action, and um, Olivier picks up the the script and starts reading the script, and I go. Uh, oh, obviously he doesn't realise we're doing a take. He thinks, you know, it's just another rehearsal. So I go, um, okay, this time there's film in the camera, we're doing a take and um, action. And he does the same thing. And I go, whoa, 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 whoa. So Lawrence, you can't read the script. You know, we're shooting a film here. And he goes, well, how the hell am I going to remember the script then? I go, oh, my God. So then we finished up, we, we finished up with big giant cards. With the, with, the, with the sentences on it, running them behind the camera. I mean, as somebody who's never had a good memory myself for remembering script dialogue, you know, I, I totally sympathised with him, but you know, it was a challenge those first days. But how does he go from being this incredible theatre actor where he must know, you know, two hours, three hours worth of material? Well, I think, I think probably, you know, if you look at the, the chronology of his work, it was probably when he did The Bounty, it was probably near the end of his career. I mean, I, my memory of him was he was probably in his early 80s, maybe. And Anthony and him, uh, they also were at the National Theatre together. So was there a camaraderie between the two of them? Well, uh, you know, there was, I, I think, you know, the, the, the acting, de- you know, the acting fraternity of England, you know, it's a very, you know, everybody's been to, you know, those great acting schools that only exist in England and um, in London and... They, they'd been through the mill as actors. They'd all been on the stage. They, you know, had been in, you know, they're just, you're not going to get better actors than you can find out of, you know, those acting schools. Did in you London. have any friction of you being, you know, a, a director of these two smaller movies? <laughs> yeah, you've read the books, haven't you? <laughs> well, Tony, you know, Tony and I, it's no secret. And, and I can say this because Tony and I did another movie that, you know, we had the complete opposite relationship. But the captain, you know, I was, my inexperience led me to not understand that Tony's, you know, hostility as, a, as, a, as playing the part of William Bly was not necessarily directed at me personally. It was just directed at the part. And though Tony became, you know, very, from my perspective, difficult to deal with as he got into more and more into the movie and it became more, the character of Bly became more and more tormented. And I remember one day, Tony, I took Tony aside and said, Tony, you know, this is, you know, we haven't, this is crazy what's happening between us. And Tony said, you think I'm crazy, don't you? And I go, no, 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 Tony, I just think that maybe, you know, taking the part a bit seriously. And Tony said, well, if you think I'm crazy now, you should have seen me when I played Hitler. <laughs> and I, and I, at that point, I did like click, oh my God, this is not directed to me. This is the being this, this is why he's so good and the, this is why he's such a brilliant actor is because he really does become the part. And he really did become William Bly. And it was, you know, I'd realized how much effort he put into it as the time went on. I have on. to say, everybody was just, a 10 in that movie you know some of the scenes you have down uh, in you know in the below uh, in the ship where you've got Daniel D Lewis Mel Gibson and Anthony and they're all going at each other I mean uh, what would, right. no, it's a film what I'm was that like of. to direct a scene like that would you direct them individually would you have a collective experience well you know one of the things that I like to do is I like to you know sort of get into the space where it's going to be and you don't really ever get a chance to do much rehearsals before you're on the set but you know, like to clear out all the everybody off the set excepting the actors and run the scene and sort of build it up and you know but leave a bit for you know, once the cameras are rolling and um 
That's pretty much how I work. Do a lot of takes, or just as many as it takes. Oh, I can do. I can. Well, in my mind, I always do what's necessary. But I, you know, I have been accused of doing too many takes. Okay. Sometimes you need to. Well, uh, you know, and when I look at when I look at what I do print and what I use, finally, it's it's either the last take or the first take. Right. Okay. So I do sort of my, you know, I do feel my judgment on what's good and what's not good is pretty accurate. I'm just imagining directing those actors in that scene. Do you do it the way that everybody else does it? Is it like, you know, you block the scene first, you do you do a reading of the scene first? Yeah, block, I mean, build, what, what's you your sort of build it up and up and up until you've got a performance. Yeah. And do you find that when you're working with actors on that caliber, they're, they're delivering at 100% when they're off camera as well as on, or does it Yeah, I change? think so. You know, I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever really worked with anybody where, where the actors off camera were not prepared to be sort of giving an on-camera performance to help the camera, the actor who is on camera. But I, but I also, you know, listen, I make it clear right from the very beginning of any, of any movie how much I sort of respect the actor's input because the movie's only going to be as good as the acting that's in the movie. And if you haven't got the commitment of the actor in, to the part, you're going to fail before you even report any films through the camera. Now, this was a, a movie that you didn't write did a lot of the movie, the script change while you were filming it? The, the script was written by Robert Bolt, and that was the, you know, what we started with was this Robert Bolt script, but the Robert Bolt script was, you know, had a lot of things in it that were not in the film or are in the film. So it was an uncredited rewrite. So you re- rewrote some of the Me another writer, yeah. And how how were the actors? Were they did they have a lot of or some input in some of that stuff? Well, I mean, it's so long ago. You know, but all I know is that some of the best stuff in my movies has always come from the actors' input. And you know, if the actor has an idea and it's a good idea, then it's a really great idea because I'm not going to turn down a good idea. You're shooting for how many days? 120 days. 120 days. Um, you're editing for how long? What was that oh, process I, like? You know, it seemed like it all went on forever. I mean, I, you know. There was a lot of film that got shot and, um, you know, I, I was enjoying, we cut the film and posted the film in London. So I had a great time living in London. And then Dino got me to do another film for him called Marie with Sissy Spacek. And and uh, that was uh, going to be to be shot in North Carolina. And so we moved to North Carolina and um, lived there for a year. Finally, it was time for the bounty to be released. And I asked Roger, having made such a big movie, what were the expectations like? All I remember was going down to the dome, you know, the uh, Cinerama dome, and there was a there was a line that sort of went down the corner and around the block and around the next corner, and um, I was like, "Oh, this is going to be a giant hit." But I think they sort of didn't really get behind it enough, or didn't promote it enough, or something. It didn't, you know, it, did, it didn't live up to what its expectations were at the beginning. And what was that like for you at that time? Well, you know, it was a bit of a reality check, I guess. And and it's a you know, sometimes movies are sort of a they get more appreciated as they get older. And I think The Bounty is one of those movies of mine that people, you know, as the as the sort of, you know, the actors that are in the film have become superstars, the movie has sort of gained a sort of reputation. It's better than it had when it came out. You look back at classic movies, you know, Ridley Scott's been through this, you know, all the great filmmakers have been no, through this. I think this anybody who makes has made more than a few movies has sort of, you know, what happens the day it comes out is so dependent on, you know, with the weather, the publicity budget, the advertising budget, the what's the competition, the you know, there's so many factors that affect how a movie's release goes. 
but you know, as time goes by and everybody gets to see it, and you know, then the movie has a you know finds its own sort of equilibrium. And if it's a you know if it's a movie that's got something going for it, then the audience you know sticks with it, and the word of mouth's good, and people you know. And in the case of the Bounty, you know, I'm still talking about that movie you know 40 years later. Well, I thought it was an excellent movie. Um, Thank you. As your others. So um, that's a great point to uh, end part one there. Um, we'll jump back in for part two, where we'll talk a little bit more about your process and um, some of the most memorable moments in your career. Roger Donaldson, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'm not going to ask you to give it a five-star review or for you to subscribe. And there is no Patreon site. I created this show to help people who don't have mentors or role models. People who want to work in the film industry but don't know which path they should take. So if you know someone who might like or benefit from the show, all I'm asking is for you to share it with them. And who knows, maybe one day you'll be listening to their story. Remember 19 media.